Welcome to the Disconnection Podcast. My name is Kyle Nielsen, and I'm here with Ben Harmadi, and we're your hosts for today's show. During this episode at Disconnection, we'll be speaking to Samantha Nish. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Okay, thanks for having me, guys. I am three years into a five-year graduate program to get my doctorate in psychology. Specifically, and this is a bit of a mumbo-jumbo of a name, I'm getting my Combined School Clinical Child PsyD. Schnikes. Yeah. What's that mean? That means that because I've completed three years, I have my master's in school psychology, which is a lot of testing, ADHD, learning disabilities. And then after five years, uh, which is two more years, I will get my doctorate in child clinical psychology. Can you uh, explain the difference between a PhD and a PsyD? Because there is a misconception and people don't even understand what it is. That's true. Uh, They're really similar, actually. Um, And when I was applying, I applied to both. PhD is much more academia and research-based, more for people who want to research, um, you know, create treatments, that kind of thing, or become professors. And PsyD is more practice-oriented. It's more clinically based, mm-hmm. so it's more hands-on. But the funny thing is, is that I'm still doing a crap ton of academia and research, so. Y- you have to know <laughs> both sides of the coin before you can flip it. Yeah, it's just kind of, it's, the PhD is science practitioner model, and the PsyD is practitioner science model. Okay. Awesome. So, what point does the practitioner part take over, uh, take over for the PsyD? Uh, this year, it really took awesome. over. I mean, last year I was placed at a school, and I was, you know, a school psychologist, and so I was doing field work. But this year, last year was much more testing. This year is much more hands-on. Um, just as much as I'm at school, I'm also at a hospital working at a clinic with uh, very young children, newborns to five-year-olds and their mothers. I do attachment work, and I also see patients individually at the clinic through school. The patients are also children. Yeah, I see at my externship, which is like the field work aspect, I see very young kids and parents, so adults as well. At the clinic, I see a range of kids. Right now I'm seeing like 13, 14-year-olds. Okay. Uh, What is the main um, attachments that you've seen in the babies to five-year-olds? What is... Like, what are you noticing outside of what your textbooks tell you? Oh, man, it's, it's a free-for-all. It really is because, you know, you learn all about, all about these things, but you never really know how it's going to present because everyone right. presents so differently. Everyone comes in with their own traumas and their own backstories, the own way that they're living. The families that are referred to the clinic that I work at specifically are very underserved, underprivileged. They live in shelters. Their kids are in foster care. So there's been a lot of separation, a lot of distachment. I don't even think that's a word, but... um, I follow, yeah. So a lot of what we see are, you know, a lot of separation anxiety. Kids that, you know, if their mother leaves the room, they're just inconsolably crying. They get hot, they get sweaty, they're just screaming bloody murder. And then there are kids who, you know, their mothers leave the room and they couldn't care less. Or they'll sit on any stranger's laps Some kids do really bizarre behaviors to get their parents' attention. They fall on the floor. They'll freeze, kind of a a push-pull. You know, I want you to hold me, but I don't want you to hold me. I want you to hold me. And the mothers as well come with their own mental health issues that we're also trying to help. Now, when you say that uh, these children are underprivileged and some of them are in foster care, are they coming in with their uh, 
um, foster parents or are they coming in with their actual parents? They're coming in with their biological, biological parents. parents. So some of these kids live with their biological parents, um, not in the best living environments. Or some of them have adequate living environments, but some issues there. But a majority of them, I would say, are in foster care. And when their parents are coming in, it's sort of their like supervised visits. Mm-hmm. Um, some are court mandated, you know, some of the courts say, if you want to get your children back, go to some parenting classes, go to some therapy. Right. And these are paid by the state, I'm assuming? Uh, Medicaid. Okay. Uh, and then does some parents come in because they were referred by their pediatricians. A lot of the kids also have developmental delays, um, autism, and sometimes when you're, you know, living in poverty and you have a child with special needs, you need some extra support. Right. Some understanding as to how exactly you connect with the child, so to speak. Um, Because I've noticed that, uh, which I'm not even sure how I've noticed this, but I've seen uh, autistic kids, uh, you know, look for that attention. And I'm not sure because I'm not living that parent's life as to whether or not the parent does give them attention or doesn't. But I see the kid like throw stuff on the ground like, hey, pick that up for me. Or I'll see... Um, just like, like you said, strange behaviors where you'd be like, oh, like, are they looking for attention? Do they normally receive that attention? Uh, and you obviously are seeing that, you know, 10 times fold than what I've seen. Well, my question is when it comes to kids as opposed to like adults, is it a lot more black and white when you see them doing these behaviors as to what they are indicators for? Or do you feel the opposite? Oh, absolutely not. I think that if anything, it's, it's, it's the opposite because because children are still developing. That's one of the main reasons why I'm interested in children. Um, you know, that the scientific aspect of development, but then also the external forces that contribute to development. How do we learn how to relate to people? How do we learn how to understand our, ourselves in the world? And I think that with children, you know, depending on the life they're leading and the kind of parenting they're getting, uh, you never really know how they're going to present, especially children who are autistic. That's a different story because they do have like a lot of biological components coming into it. Um, but I think that as a child is growing, that's why it's so important that we get this intervention in really early because you never know what will happen as the child develops. A lot of these kids have like delayed onset of cognitive disabilities. Some of them might start out with delays, but through the intervention, get better. I saw a child who was classified as selectively mute. She wouldn't speak at all. And through the intervention of, you know, helping her mother become more attuned to her emotionally and helping her mother understand her child's intentions and motivations and also helping the child kind of reorient to the mother, she started speaking more and feeling more safe. And now she's not selectively mute. With these... um would you call what you do at all like psychotherapy? Yes, that's exactly what it is. Okay, so you studied a lot of Freud, and do you think that um, not everything that he said is correct anymore as science has advanced and as psychology has advanced? But do you, it really is an intervention when you say that, right? Mm-hmm. Has there, is there a, a lot of backlash still against Freud within the um, PsyD community itself? It's really interesting because I think once you're in the psych field, you learn about all these other theories. So 
I am right now, my program does one year long of psychodynamic training, which is Freud and whatnot. And then next year is cognitive behavioral training, a little more, um, it's more skills-based, more practice-oriented, that sort of thing. And in psychodynamic treatment, um, Freud was the first theorist, but after him was tenfold of theorists. I mean, there's object relations, there's attachment theory, which is a whole different thing than Freud's classical Oedipal theory. There's um, inter interpersonal theory. Could you go into some of these yeah. theories? Yeah. Hmm. Okay, I got to make my professors proud here. Yeah. <laughs> I just got an A in my theory class. So, so really don't mess <laughs> <laughs> So Freud was the first person to kind of say that our childhood experiences shape who we are. He talked about these stages we go through. Um, he thought everything was related to sex and aggression, that our psyche was organized in terms of three integral structures, and that is the id, which is your instinctual drives, your sex, your aggression, your fantasy life, and those are in the unconscious. Then you have your superego, which is kind of the outside force. Um, the morals you learn, the principles you learn, a very more um, morality complex. And then there's the ego that mediates between the two. What, you know, it, it takes what the superego is saying as you can't do that, and the id's saying, but I want to do that, and finds ways to to help you function and understand the world and make sense of yourself. And also it decides kind of what defenses you'll use. How will you defend yourself against things that might threaten your, your psyche? Um, and he also was famously known for the Oedipal complex, which, you know, he said that children go through there, that sexual life is very active when you're a child. Mm -hmm. You go through these stages. I don't need to get into them. You can Google them. They're long and intensive. But that during the Oedipal stage, that <laughs> if you just explain it, it sounds really weird, that you end up becoming attracted to the opposite sex parent. And in when you become attracted to the opposite sex parent, you end up becoming rivals with the same sex parent. Hmm. Um, so like hypothetically, like I would become attracted to my father in the sense of like, you know, I want to marry this man. This is my like, this is my provider. This is like this grandiose man in my life. But like I hate my mother because she's the one who has him. And the way you resolve that conflict is by identifying with the same sex parent. You kind of realize, oh, this is like I identify with this person and it's way more complicated than that. When I say it like that, it sounds very literal. It's Explain much like more. This is good. It's yeah. much more uh, metaphorical and unconscious. These are very much unconscious. Right. Uh, That's where daddy issues comes from. Sure. Got you. Got you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, another theory that you said was object. Uh, what was that? Oh, object relations. That's relations. a really hard one. Um, that basically says that. Uh, when you're little is that like having your own like blanket sort of thing transitional objects is yes it's actually a part of object relations so, good job so that's part of uh the study with the baby monkeys who go to the dummy uh, mother monkey with spikes but has milk and then the soft blanket uh mother monkey like and these mother monkeys are are um, just objects that the scientists have created and the baby monkey will drink milk from the spike mother 
and then run immediately over to the soft mother because it feels like someone's holding them. What do you mean a spike mother? Like it's it's a sharp, like uh, metal, uncomfortable to hold mother, but it has milk on it. So the baby monkey will climb up on it and drink the milk. But the moment it's fed, it runs back to the soft blanket mother and like holds it and cuddles with it. Is that type of, is that what it is? Yeah, we studied Harlow's, that's a Harlow's like racist monkey, racist monkey experiment. We studied that a bunch and it, it does come into play in object relations in a way. Um, it, I think it more has to do with attachment, but it's similar. Object relations is out there. Um, the more literal sense of it, the more classical. See, that's the thing with psychodynamic. It's, there's very classical thinking that you said. It's kind of controversial nowadays because it's mm -hmm. like not everything is sex. Not everything is aggression. Sure. And now there's contemporary theory, which is incorporating more of the themes but making them more modern. Object relations is similar to that in that there's this classical theory and contemporary. But the classical theory kind of says that when you're born uh, and you're being – it's all based on being breastfed, really. There's a good breast that's providing you milk that's feeding you, nourishing you, and then there's a bad breast when the mom goes away. Um, this is legit. When, a when the mom goes away, you feel abandoned, you feel hurt, you feel rageful, like rage. Uh, Melanie Klein was the object relations theorist, and she said that children are full of rage. And you, the healthy development says that you learn to integrate the two. You learn that the bad object, the bad breast, and the good breast are actually the same person. They're the same thing. And if you don't get to that place, then you end up having, you know, good and bad objects in your life, very black and white thinking. You see somebody who is very all or nothing, very much like, like, oh, my God, I hate that person. They did X, Y, and Z to me. I hate that person, but I really love, like, this person. Like, maybe your mom and your dad. I hate my dad, but I love my mom. Um, and... There's a lot more to it, but transitional objects are definitely a part of it because Winnicott, who's also another object relation theorist, said that the transitional objects uh, kind of bridge the gap between these spaces of your fantasy life and your real life and the good objects and the bad objects. Mm -hmm. So does that mean like, let's say you don't have that good breast around you, you have a transitional object to keep you satisfied until that is back to you? Is that kind of what you meant or am I? Yeah, it's a little more nuanced than that, but in a way, yes. You know, if in in a realistic practical sense, not talking about breasts, if, you know, say one of the kids I'm I with. I was just <laughs> No, no, no. I, I was talking about breasts. That's what the that's what the theory is about. And I've said breasts a lot. Um, <laughs> when you, like when a child's parent leaves a room and maybe they're thinking, oh my God, will my mother ever return? Sometimes that teddy bear or that, blanket, you know, reminds them of their mother. It's a piece of their mother to help them through this transition, um, through this space of, of immense fear um, and, and rage. My mother left and this, this place of, well, I know she's coming back because she mm -hmm. loves me and she trusts me. And so there's that. What was the other uh, theory that you said? It was um, uh, association of um attachment attachment oh attachment yeah that that's like the a big one you know because i'm studying that right now specifically at the at the um clinic i work at and that's kind of just saying that that the way we learn how to relate to other people how we learn how to experience ourselves how we experience the world around us all relates back to our early caregiving experiences that everything relates back to how we were cared for um as a young kid 
So, um, you know, whether your parent was consistently there for you, um, you know, they were responsive and attentive to your needs, whether a mother was inconsistent. Sometimes she would be there, I love you, I can give you everything you need, and then other times be not there for you when you need it. Um, and that's secure and insecure attachment. We try to foster secure attachment where you, there's this trust and attunement between the mother and child. But a lot of kids have insecure attachment where, you know, if their mother leaves, they might not know if their mother's going to come back. Or, you know, their mother goes to approach them, they don't know if they're going to get hit or a hug. Um, and that kind of shapes the kind of blueprint for how you learn how to relate in the world. And an attachment theorist would say that your intimate relations as an adult are framed based on your relationships with your caregivers. So not to like cut you off, but why'd you get into psychology? Like what, why kids also? And like, how'd you get here? I mean, that's the, that's the real question here. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of things. Uh, I think first and foremost is my own mental health. Mm -hmm. I've always felt things very acutely. Um, I was a really anxious child. Um, always pretty dramatic. Fun fact, my senior superlative in high school was biggest drama queen. Uh, I hope that I'm not (laughs) like that now. I was going to say I would not have guessed. Yeah, I I would not have guessed either. I know. I really chilled out. I mean, I think I was pretty chill then too, but you never know because I did win that superlative. (laughs) I'm not bitter. Um, I'm just kidding. The passive aggressive. (laughs) That's what it's turned into. I was also friends with a lot of guys in high school and I feel like compared to them, I might have been more dramatic. But... Uh, I've always been, I've always been, I've always felt things very acutely. And, you know, from a young age, I was diagnosed with general anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder. Um, we talk about those all the time on this yeah. show. We yeah. Do. We love it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was diagnosed with those when I was 10 years old. I was on medication since I've been 12 years old. Mm-hmm. There's been times when I'm off my medication and whatnot, but right now I'm on medication and I'm one of those people that thinks that it's how I need to function. There are sure. lots of people like that. It could just literally be your brain chemistry. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and so there, there's that piece that, you know, I've always been really interested in mental health because I myself have experienced mental health issues and struggles and learning about myself. And then there is also this other piece to it, um, theater, which we were briefly talking about earlier. Yeah, before the podcast. And... I, for my whole life, thought I was going to be an actress. Um, you know, still could be. I still could be. I'm hoping to be maybe a Dr. Phil with, like, the real PhD behind it, society. Cool. Behind. Yeah, that would be pretty badass. That would be. Um, so I always wanted to be an actress. And, you know, I think part of it, I like the attention. I think part of it that <laughs> I... <laughs> I know. Um, there's also this other part of it where I... I just, I loved it. I would did it from such an early age. Um, and a lot of my friends did. And I mean, I did theater up until I was applying for college. I had audition monologues lined up. I was going to apply to conservatories. I was going to go the 10 yards. And then I kind of realized, oh, I'm not really that good. I just kind of enjoyed doing it. I was surrounded by friends who were getting into Tish and, and all these places. I mean, my friends are talented. Um, Way to not have like a blown up ego and just like keep doing it if you didn't feel that you were actually, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a part of it that I really enjoyed, but mm-hmm. there was a part of it where I was like, if I make this decision to go to school for acting, that is limiting myself because I didn't really know. I wasn't sure. I wasn't 
you know, the best or good enough to kind of say, I know that I can succeed at this. It's a really hard path to go down to try and make it in that industry. You have to have a dream. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wasn't sure. I really, I knew I loved acting. I knew I loved theater. I knew I loved, you know, the work that goes into it. But I didn't know if I loved it enough to make it my life. So I went to a liberal arts school and I took my first psychology class and it was like a light bulb went off in my head. Um, I guess I was really lucky to have that experience where it just all clicked. It was like, oh, I, I don't really like performing. What I like is analyzing a character. I like getting into a character's mind. What are their motivations behind what they're saying? Why are they acting the way they're acting? What are the layers of who this person is, the character that I'm trying to become? Yeah, and that's what I liked about acting. And then I realized, oh, that's psychology. <laughs> um, and then there was this little back and forth between psychology and sociology uh, where I didn't know which I would major in and um, because they're both so related and they're both really interesting. And I ended up choosing psychology because I really kind of like the science behind it too. I love, you know, brain anatomy and um, development and stuff like that. So I chose psychology. And then I decided if I'm going to do psych, I'm going to do the most I can do with it. And getting my doctorate is the most. Absolutely. So what makes, uh, what's like the end goal? You're getting your doctorate and? And I mean, that's still up in the air. I don't really know because I'm learning, I'm getting all these experiences in grad school, um, trying to figure out what I like and I don't like. I really like testing. It's very... Like evaluations for children? Yeah, there are lots of different kinds of testing. I When I say testing, it's um, psychoeducational, it's IQ testing, academic testing, social mm-hmm. emotional testing. It's how you diagnose people. Kyle's pointing to me right now because he knows I used to staff child study teams. I was going to ask you, are you working in child study teams in schools? Is that kind of where you're at or is it a bit of a different thing? Uh, Yes and no. I already finished my assessment practicum, so I already kind of did that. Last year I was at a school, but it was just independent testing through the school, through the Department of Education and testing through our clinic. But it's that's how, you know, you diagnose somebody, a lot of it is learning disorders and ADHD, but I've diagnosed people with depression and anxiety based on these tests. And are your diagnoses uh, valid? Yes, because I have a licensed supervisor who is on me every step of the way. And that licensed supervisor is with you while you're testing the individuals? No, uh, they're not. I mean, they might see a video of it. We have to record a lot of our sessions, but it's more case supervision. I would go to them. Mm weekly discuss my case discuss the writing the report um you know they have to sign off on the report for it to be valid so there's a lot of working together that goes into it i'm i have like four supervisors right now for many different things um but so i really like to get back to your question i really like the assessment piece there's something very logical and and scientific about it that makes sense to me and it like feels like figuring out a puzzle totally and it's very satisfying Um, but we're getting most of our training in therapy and clinical work and that I really like, but it's intense. And I think that because this is my first time, like really actively doing this work, I'm having these moments where I'm like, whoa, could I make this my life? This is, it's intense. It takes a lot out of you. I'm sure that with experience, I will, I become easier, become more able to handle it. Right now, it's kind of a shock to the system, and it makes you think, well, 
what do I want to do? You know, is my end goal a private practice to just see people individually back to back all day long? Do I want to be in a school where I can do testing and counseling? Do I want to be in a hospital where I'm doing this really intense uh, clinical work? There are a lot of options, and I think that's one of the reasons why I went for the PsyD because I knew it would allow me to have more options. I would have my kind of an array of sure. skills and things that I could gather and do. Here's a question. I think that IQ testing has a lot of validity to it. What's your opinion on EQ testing? What's EQ testing? Uh, it's emotional instead of intellectual. Mm. Tell me more. You know, I've actually never heard of EQ before. Let me look it up. Um, Did you just make that up, Kyle? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Okay. But they're, sure. they're like, if you're talking about emotional intelligence, there are a lot of ways that we measure that. Um, we call it personality functioning, social emotional functioning. And, you know, uh, IQ testing is puzzles and, and word associations and vocabulary. Are you registered to uh, do IQ tests? I mean, I yeah, know, yeah, once I'm licensed. With your supervisor. Yeah, with my yeah. supervisor, yes. And I still do evaluations at my externship all the time. It's actually kind of a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because you have to write the report and everything. Me but, and Kyle have been dying to get an IQ test done together and then tell the results on the air live. Well, I can maybe see. If you maybe could make see. that happen. If you guys were in my life a couple years ago, we had to practice on our friends. So I tested a oh, lot of my friends. That's sweet. Um, but... You know, the way we test emotional intelligence is through personality assessments and social-emotional testing. Social-emotional testing is a lot of self-reports, parent reports, you know, checklists of someone does, I, I feel this way, often, somewhat, never, that kind of thing. And then there's personality functioning, which is, you know, like your standard inkblot test, the Rorschach. We still do that. That's, that's something we do, and it's actually probably the hardest test out there. To do, um, to facilitate, like hardest for you to admit, yeah. Uh, the lo- hard to score and and interpret because you know it really is a what might this be? You look at an ink ink blot and somebody says something, but what a lot of people don't know is that as a psychologist, you have to pick apart that answer. You look for the content, you look for different descriptors, you look for vocabulary words they said, and their response gets turned into a code. That code gets turned into numerical values and statistics. And that's, those statistics gets measured against a large sample sort of thing. And then from there, you can make your interpretations. But it's a very um, scientific sort of deductive way to get to where you're going. And that's the hard part. Wow. So you said you've never um, heard or have conducted an EQ test. Uh, I wonder Where have you heard of this, like uh, in uh, school in, or? In, no, in many of the books that I've read. So EQ uh, test is the emotional intelligence test, like you said, and it reflects a person's ability to empathize with others, identify, evaluate, and control, uh, or express one's own emotions uh, to perceive and assess others' emotions. Um, is EQ the name of the test, or is that the name of a type of test? Well, it's like IQ, EQ. So I guess it's the but name we, like of it. within IQ, there's the Stanford Binet, the WISC, like different kinds of tests. So there if there's any? a variety of EQ tests, I'm not positive. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, when I read about it, it's just they refer to it as an EQ test. Yeah. And maybe they'll say the scientist's name who created a new EQ test study, mm-hmm. but I don't remember any right now. I mean, there are a gajillion tests out there. It's very possible I've done some EQ 
test. I've never heard of it in that way, but what you're saying is something that we definitely assess for. Um, even in informal mental health assessments, you know, when I'm with my clients and we're doing intakes and we have to think of what's their mental status right now, all that kind of stuff comes into play. Um, so that's interesting. I'd Would you say that those IQ tests online or applications like Lumosity, um, th do those hold any validity? I think there's validity to those apps. So you do all these tests and it scores you based on how the game, the mini game scores you. And then it compares you to people in your age group uh, across everyone playing. Do you think those uh, statistics and percentages are valid at all? I mean, yeah, that, that's essentially what we do in testing is we take, we find somebody's scores and then we compare it to the normative sample. The normative sample can be based on your age range, but it can also be based on your ability level. You know, if somebody has a really low IQ, they're really disabled, we're not gonna compare them to every 13 year old in the country. We're gonna compare them to people who have similar uh, uh, profiles, similar intellectual profiles. But, you know, if they're within this range that is, you know, low to high and average in the middle, then yeah, we compare it to all the ages. Um, and there's a lot of controversy around that, too, because, you know, there are people in urban places or do they have the same uh, resources and um, and factors that would associate with IQ as someone in a really rural place, uh, different class issues, things like that. Um, but in general, the normative sample is kind of how you get an idea of where you fall in terms of, you know, words like average or above average mm -hmm. or below average. It's all relative. I mean, It's all relative, yeah. exactly. Have you taken an IQ test? I haven't. I can't because... You're not allowed to? No, I can't because I know how it works and I know oh. the tests like like really well. Um, Does that make your answers not valid? You're, yeah, you're it wouldn't be valid because I, I, know, I know what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. I know I've also administered the test a lot of times that I could probably tell you what it is. Yeah, I don't... I. I, that's one of the things I was bummed about when we were taking this is I would love to know where I fall, but unfortunately, you know, I've had way There's too much no experience like with the tests. Unstandard version of an IQ test that you can come in and I could take one of those online things idea. and then and then Thank see, you. but I don't know if uh where where does an average person lie on the scale? Oh, that that's that's a loaded question. That's, I don't know. Isn't that a very relative question? It's, well, it's a new it's a numerical value, correct? So yeah. where does what ranges are average? What's genius? In terms of standard scores, ninety to and where do I lie? Ninety to one. <laughs> I knew that was literally on the tip of your tongue, dude. After <laughs> this, we can go into it, okay? Cool, cool. <laughs> Probably on the lower end, but unbelievable. But yeah, I, it's there are numerical values and standard scores and things that are normative, and but there's also a lot of intra comparison stuff. How do your own skills relate to your skills? How do your strengths relate to your weaknesses? Um, you might be really good at visual spatial skills, but might not be great at memory or processing speed, um, things like that. So it, it's all relative. Do you administer these tests to uh, the kids? And when you administer them to the kids, do you think that you can already kind of tell what a kid might uh, receive? Uh, yes and no. I do administer them to the kids, yes. Um, but it really depends. You know, there are a lot of, of course, there are a lot of people coming in being like, I want extra time on my SATs. So test me and say that I need extra time. And that sort of thing, it's like, okay, you never really know what's going to pop up. But people come in with a referral problem. They'll say, my daughter can't read. 
my my son uh, really can't focus. Um, and so you have sort of a direction to go on based on the referral question, but you still administer the test in a non-biased way. And there are sometimes things that are surprising. You know, I had I tested a girl last year who came in for reading issues. Um, she needed an updated IEP, um, which is an individualized education plan. And uh, you need a test testing case to do that. And so, you know, when it came down to the academic sec- section, her her reading was poor. She, and like I said, within it, there's so many components: decoding, letter identification, comprehension. You know, we have to learn about every damn thing that goes into it. But then we did these social emotional tests, and it really came out that this girl's really depressed. She's and she's suffering from anxiety. And, you know, we got the backstory from the parents and get a little background information and see contextually how it all relates. And then once you have all the information, you can never make a diagnosis based on one test. You need to have multiple tests to back it up, background information. You have to comprehensively put everything together. And I was surprised that by the end of this, it wasn't just learning disorder. This was you know, how she is emotionally functioning too. And, I, you know, there's a piece of it. Well, how does that affect her academic performance and vice versa? When you were um, diagnosed with uh, depression as a kid, do you feel like that could have been possibly your parents pushing you because they saw something maybe wrong? Or do you feel like it was proper? Um, you know, I'm one of these, I'm, I'm a rare case where I sought out treatment when I was younger. You, you sought out? Uh, when I was like 10 or 11. What at 10 or 11 did you feel where you knew I mean, there felt was a that little there bit was of, something like that at there least? There was a little bit of both. You know, I came from a family that is very pro-treatment, pro-medication. My brother was on medication. Mm-hmm. My parents have been on medication. Um, we, you know, there was no stigma to seeing a therapist. Sure. So it was already pretty open there. And like I said, I felt things very acutely. I feel like this is where my emotional intelligence, I feel like, was much higher and much more intense than a lot of the people I was with. And I noticed that. I noticed that I experienced things differently and I felt things differently and I reacted differently. And, you know, I take it back. It was my parents' decision to take me to a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. But... I was open to it, and I wanted to do it. And from there, I suggested therapy. Um, And, yeah, and, uh, you know, I've been a huge advocate for my own mental health my whole life. I mean, after that initial time where my parents kind of suggested it, I've been the one, you know, when my parents were like, oh, maybe it's time to stop, go off the medication. I've been the one to say, no, I want to go back. Or if I want to change therapists, I was the person to say, I'm not really feeling this person. I want to move to this person. Um, did you feel like, uh, you know, growing up, this was so easy because, you know, your parents talked about emotions and this was like an open conversation. There really wasn't any stigma in the house. Uh, yeah, I think that definitely had an easier time than somebody who who might live in a house where there is stigma for that. Uh, you know, somebody who who isn't able to to talk to their parents about that sort of thing. But it also had its detriments, you know. Um, a lot of the ex- behaviors and feelings and stuff I was experiencing outside of home, I was also experiencing in the home, you know, especially since I've been learning a lot about how parenting um, affects you, which I'm sorry, mom and dad. There are a lot of things that 
that, you know, in my in the way I grew up, that has shaped the way that I am. And so I think that while it was helpful that they were on board, there was also a lot of things that they did that that weren't necessarily super helpful all the time. And do you think that your emotional intelligence as of that time and then until today is relevant to the way you were treated by your parents or things that they did helping you grow up? Yeah, but I think that could be said for everybody. Like as in a nature versus nurture sort of? Yeah. Thing. I mean, there's definitely, um, that. that's one of the biggest arguments in psychology. Mm -hmm. And I think that, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think right now it's very much on my mind because it's so hard. One of the things they tell us in grad school all the time is don't diagnose yourself. Don't take these theories and think about them on yourself. And it's so much harder than you think because you're reading something and you're like, oh, my God, my parents totally overvalidated that part of myself. Is that why I am the way that I am? Sure. Um, but, you know, I have to try and remain objective. But it has brought a lot of things up. And I think that also being in treatment as long as I have – I do, you know, have some more insight on myself and insight on other people's behaviors. And then on top of that, learning about it, I have all that insight. But the thing that a lot of people don't understand is that I also, there's still so many parts of me that are completely irrational and completely um, non-insightful because just like any other person, I'm a human being and I have my own issues. And um, just because I'm a therapist doesn't mean that I'm everything's you know sorted out of course i think we all got issues right yeah. i mean that's totally fine i did want to rewind like two inches back on how you said that was one of the biggest debates right now the nature versus nurture thing could you tell us your opinion on that actually oh yeah i, mean, I know it's kind of a macro question but it really is i i believe in nature and nurture i think there's no denying both it's it's silly to me that people mm -hmm think one or the other. And I think that in contemporary psychology, there is no, there is no answer. Um, there is an undeniable nature. There's genetic force. There is biology. This has been proven. This has been solved. It's done and done. We know this. But then there's all these things, um, trauma, how you were raised, you know, even from a sociological perspective, your class, your race, your ethnicity, all these things that come into who you are and how you learn to function. Um, you know, I've seen two kids with the same exact trauma, same, uh, but I mean, same exact, um, sorry, rewind. I've seen two kids with the same exact diagnosis, but they've experienced different traumas in their life and they present completely differently. You know, it, you can't deny that they both affect each other. And I also think that there's like a symbiotic relationship there too. So some sort of uh, like third, you know, aspect that we're not seeing that they uh, group together nature and nurture. And we just haven't thought of a way to, to, to conceptualize it, right? Because people say one or the other and why not both? And when it happens to be both, it creates a new dimension. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there are times when n nature in isolation is useful and nurture in isolation is useful. But to say it's one or the other, I think it's just ignorant to the way humans exist. I think you could sure. look around and see that, you know, wh what is human existence? It's a combination of your biological being and your 
soul, quote unquote, your essence, your, you know, who you are as a person, your personality. I, I thought that we was were a talking, great quote, yeah. first of all. Um, and I'm, I'm so happy that you're able to share your opinion because just this past week, we were talking in our group chat with a good friend of ours, me and Ben, uh, about nature versus nurture. And it originated from another one of our friends saying, well, you know, I really want your opinion on this. And the way that I perceive his questioning is that he's trying to diagnose, which he has nowhere near as much uh, knowledge or experience as you do. And so it's just an arbitrary diagnosis like, oh, I know what you're thinking, right? Because I I can read your mind type of deal. Um, But the conversations that those, uh, the destinations that those conversations arrive at is that we get to help each other understand a concept. And so you being able to, you know, give your two cents and say like, it is both. It's, it's really important for people to hear that so that they don't come up with like misdiagnosing themselves. Like you're not allowed to do that, but you do it anyway. So when someone reads something online, they do it anyway to themselves, whether they're going into that practice or not. And it's so hard to, to deny, especially with this new, you know, force of the internet. Um, it's, it's undeniable, but there is also this part of it where, you know, that's what science is. Science is disagreeing with people. How do you think new things are created? They're created because someone says, I don't agree with this theory. I don't agree with this. I'm going to come up with my own, make my own experiment, sure. figure out my own thing in combat to that. And then it grows tenfold. And then we get all these different things. And that, that's what science is. What are some of the myths that you hear uh, pop up? Oh, man, so many. Um, well, the first is just about my title. A lot of people, including my parents, uh, for a long time were like, oh, you're, you're getting your doctorate. You can prescribe medication. Unfortunately, I cannot. I personally think it's a little silly that someone getting as much training as myself, I also am studying psychopharmacology, cannot. But to be a psychiatrist, which is who prescribes medication, you have to go to medical school. You have to do the full med school eight years. Um, and what I'm going to be doing is psychologist. I'm going to be a psychologist. And so I'm going to be a doctor of psychology and I'm going to be able to diagnose and test and treat, but I can't prescribe medication. A lot of people think that. Um, I think another common misconception that I spoke about earlier is that therapists have it all figured out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one been one of the harder things to to deal with during this whole process of this juxtaposition between being a person that can hold somebody else's feelings and help them and be um, a person of authority in a sense, sure. you know, but at the same time going home and being with myself and feeling like I'm a child or feeling like, oh my God, I just helped somebody else deal with this, but I have no clue how to handle it. Um, but that's just like the world we're in, you know, everybody's got kind of their roles and you've got to be able to figure out a way to separate the person from the profession. And, you know, mm-hmm. everybody's got their two sides to that. Absolutely. It's just, you know, when I have friends who, you know, we joke around and we say, oh, my God, I'm a working therapist. That's terrifying. Right. And we're joking and it's all in jest. But there is a part of me that thinks like that thinks like, well, yeah, I, I get it. It's You know, you've known me my whole life. You know, my quirks, you know, my things that aren't necessarily healthy or or, or rational. But there is a side of it where um, where that doesn't necessarily make me a bad therapist. Part of these uh, tests that you have, are they, um, would you say that they're also 
gathered into uh, clinical studies? I'm actually doing research right now, but I'm in the very beginning phases. Can we ask what kind of research? Are you not really allowed to talk about? No, absolutely. It's for my thesis, uh, quote unquote. And I'm studying bystander behavior in cyberbullying. That's really interesting. Yeah. You know, I don't want to I don't want to digress from your question, but I I would love to just hop into it. Uh, so, you know, it has to be about youth or children because that's what my degree is in. And I was really curious in how social media sort of changed the game for how we relate to people. And, um, you know, all these things come into play with social media, how it's changed our sense of accountability and responsibility, where. Um, and an anonymity comes into the picture, and um, to me, it just led to cyberbullying because of you know the population I want to work with and whatnot. And what really started it though was I was sitting with a group of my friends, and we saw a post on Facebook that you know someone was like, "I'm so depressed. I shouldn't exist. I should just end my life." You know, one of those really scary kind of pseudo suicidal comments. And people were commenting really mean things. Like, why would you post this on Facebook, attention whore, stuff like that. And me and my friends were all sitting there kind of thinking about, well, what do we do? I had one friend who said, not my problem. You know, yeah, it's out there, but I'm not in any way responsible for this person. Not my problem, not going to do anything. I had another friend say, I think I would comment and try and mediate the situation. I had another friend say, I would message the person privately and say something. And that got my wheels turning. You know, what factors about a person would make them more or less inclined to intervene in something like that and how they would intervene. So right now I'm specifically studying, you know, kind of factors that would influence somebody to intervene. I'm looking at personality, um, extroversion, neuroticism, conscientiousness, somebody's level of empathy, um, I feel like empathy has a lot to do with it, and it's probably one of the more relative uh, things to this. It's like, how can people, why do people feel so comfortable being shittier on an online presence than they would be generally in person? Yeah, like What absolutely. opens that door? Empathy is like one of the biggest variables that, that's discussed with it. Um, there's demographic factors, age, gender, um, but... You know, what really interests me specifically is not what would make somebody a bully or a victim or even like the psychology behind cyberbullying. I'm really interested in these bystanders, you know, the people who are flipping through their Instagram and see something alarming and do something or don't do something. Why? You know, what what would make them more or less inclined to do that? I'm really curious about that because I think that on a larger scale – you know, this this is something I don't want to open up a can of worms here, but on a macro level, you know, of course, I'm just a, a mere grad student in New York doing like cyberbullying research. But on a macro level, there are all these insane things, you know, mass shootings and, and women's rights and um, all these watershed movements happening right now. Mm-hmm. And an online presence is such a big force. And even the bystanders of how you choose to engage or not engage in how you choose to, uh, 
you know, show your voice or not show your voice. Um, it's tough. Like, you're talking about huge issues right here. And seeing somebody, you know, there's always going to be that troll online who's going to comment on the woman's empowerment post and say something shitty, right? So as who are you to be like, I'm going to come in there and shut this guy up, you know? Like, it's a, it's a tough position. It's tough to be a bystander, I mm -hmm. guess, while it's really not tough at all to be a bystander at the same time. It's an interesting thing. Exactly. That's the kind of thing, because I'm not going to lie. My, my right. sole opinion is, like, in that situation with my friends, I was one of those people that said, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to get involved. Because it's it's not my business. Who is it for you to deal with this? But what about myself makes me more or less inclined to do that. Um, and I think that's what's interesting to me is, is you know, if there's obviously, there was, there's the classic bystander study, which is uh, the murder of Kitty Genovese. And I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly. But, you know, it's about murder happened and all these people see it from there from their apartment windows. At least 50. At least 50, and, and nobody called, or no one did anything, and that- This is a real life thing that happened? Mm -hmm. Holy shit. In Sorry. the 60s. This is what uh, created the concept of the bystander. The bystander effect. effect. Yeah. The bystander effect says that the more people that are present for a situation, the, the less inclined people are to do anything about it, because sure. there's a diffusion of responsibility. And I think that goes so hand in hand with the internet. The audience is, is I feel like it multiplies tenfold. Yeah, exactly. And Infinite because fold. of that, you know, how does that affect how you'll choose to react to something? I So my question, sorry. No, no, go for it. I was just going to ask, like, in your findings, have you, do you have any answers to why you think that people are bystanders now, like, doing this research? Like, I'm still in the beginning phases. Okay. I'm doing my literature review. I am just Theories? looking at... Looking at everything out there, I have not, I need to narrow down my variables. I need to think about what sample I'm going to do it with, how I'm going to do it. I'm in the very beginning stages. Sure, I'm just spearheading you. I mean, I find this really interesting, honestly. So, well, I'll keep you posted. Please do. Please do. And if anyone wanted to reach out to you and figure out, you know, maybe not that they're going to look for a diagnosis on themselves, but just have some questions, how would they be able to reach out to you? Um, yeah, absolutely. You can obviously find me on social media, Samantha Nish. I'm around, or you can email me. I'm just gonna throw You're, out my yeah. Do the plug. Okay, I'm gonna plug myself. Um, my email is s n i s h seven two four at gmail .com. So snish seven twenty four, and totally open and receptive to it. I think it'd be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very that much. That was awesome. Thank you. Really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing with us and, and enlightening us. Um, Thank you guys for having me. I feel like I could talk for like five more hours at you least. You can come back. This was a great episode. <laughs> yeah. Come back when yeah. you have uh, IQ tests for us. Yes. <laughs> we would love to do an IQ test and an EQ test. It doesn't have to be an EQ test. I'm going to look into that. But a an emotional test that we could also take together. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I have like 5% empathy. So I want to like find out a concrete number if we can. I'm sure that's super accurate. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, thank you for joining us on another episode of The Disconnection Podcast, where we aim to inform, inspire, and close the disconnections in your lives. We'd like to thank our guest, Samantha Nish, for joining us today and delivering a unique perspective on a range of topics. We'd also like you guys to please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes and YouTube. Also, you can find us on our website, disconnection.com. My name's been Ben. I've been Kyle. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Disconnection. <laughs>